We are uh, nearing the end of a short series where we've been looking at several psalms, and this has been a wonderful time for us. The reason that we're looking at the psalms, uh, these psalms in particular, is uh, to grow in our obedience of the last command that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. That command is, remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's a command. Remember that I'm with you. And the way Jesus remembered the Father's presence was with him, one of the ways, was by praying the Psalms. And so, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57. It will be on screen. You're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles. This is a Psalm of David, and he writes, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you I have taken shelter. In the shadow of your wings I take shelter until trouble passes. I cry out for help to God Most High, to the God who vindicates me. May he send help from heaven and deliver me from my enemies who hurl insults. May God send his loyal love and faithfulness. I am surrounded by lions. I lie down among those who want to devour me. Men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose, tongue are sharp, whose tongues are sharp swords. Rise up above the sky, O God. May your splendor cover the whole earth. They have prepared a net to trap me. I am discouraged. They have dug a pit for me. They will fall into it. I'm determined, O God. I am determined. I will sing and praise you. Awake, my soul. Awake, O stringed instrument and harp. I will wake up at dawn. I will give you thanks before the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to you before foreigners. For your loyal love extends beyond the sky. And your faithfulness reaches the clouds. Rise up above the sky, O God. May your splendor cover the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, we're listening. Would you speak to us uniquely, each one? Would you speak to us about your word? Lord, you know our hope that we would learn to actively remember that you, Jesus, are with us and that we would take shelter in your presence the way King David took shelter in you. Help us, Lord. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, brothers and sisters, if you pray this psalm, you'll be learning a number of things, but the thing I want to highlight today is that if you pray this psalm, you will be learning to take shelter in God's character, that his character itself 
will be the shelter you run to. And uh, if I could go back in time and do this series over again, we, we've followed, you know, we've gone from the beginning of the Psalter, the set of Psalms, uh, you know, in order, and that's how we picked the order, which is fine, right? Um, but if I could go back in time, I would have done this one first, probably, because as best I can tell, of the Psalms that we've been looking at this year, this is the earliest one that David wrote. This comes the earliest in his life. And uh, I know that, or my, I guess that, from the inscription that is in the original Hebrew before the psalm. It's, it's this, um, a prayer of David written when he fled from Saul into the cave, into the cave. Now, there are sort of two famous scenes where David is hiding from Saul in a cave. Uh, one is a cave called Adullam. The other is a cave called Engedi. And um, in the, uh, there's other psalms that are identified as the psalms at uh, prayers he wrote in Adullam. So this is the other cave. Uh, and I want to tell you a bit about that story and a bit about David, too. If you, uh, if you try to track with the story of David, obviously one of, the, one of the monumental figures in the story of Scripture, uh, in the early bit of his life, you will find the timeline of David's life a bit murky, a little bit challenging to follow. We know that David was the youngest of a bunch of brothers, and that his household chore was to care for the family flocks. He was, you know, assigned shepherd duty. And that was during the reign of Israel's first king, King Saul. We know that sometime during David's young life, when he's a young man, the, the prophet Samuel, who was regarded as Israel's spiritual leader, uh, the, the same one who had anointed Saul to be the first king, uh, we know that sometime during, during David's young life, uh, Samuel went to Saul and said, you've disqualified yourself, man. You are being rejected as the king. What we don't know is, was that before or after this young David uh, went to help with a, a battle that Saul and his army was fighting and David faced the giant Goliath? We don't know if the anointing happened before or after that, or the, the rejection. You know, we, we don't know if that was before or after the young man, David, who was also a musician, was effectively hired by Saul or conscripted by Saul to be a musician in Saul's home. Saul dealt with some significant anxiety, and David would come and play the lyre for him, and it would, it would calm him down. Uh, eventually, because victory followed David wherever he went after he defeated Goliath, uh, David became a general in Saul's army. Um, was his fame before or after Samuel rejected Saul? It, it's, it's not exactly clear. But however the order of events played out, eventually, 
Saul recognizes that David, this general in his army, this guy who plays music in his home, is more famous, more popular than Saul is. And Saul begins to hate him with a jealous rage. In fact, Saul uh, throws spears at David while David's playing music for him. You know, David has to flee multiple times with the help of friends. He miraculously escapes from Saul, and then he's on the run. He's obviously not leading the army anymore, but, but 600 soldiers kind of leave and join him, and they're you know, they're kind of like Robin Hood and, and Robin Hood's men. You know, they go and rescue little villages from attacking Philistines and, and all these wild stories. They're, you know, they're, they're out rugged. They're living in the fields. They're, you know, they're, they're sleeping in caves. And Saul knows, like any good ancient king, he knows that if he doesn't put David in the ground, his rule is uh, limited. He knows it's going to end soon. So Saul is after him. This psalm that we just heard, Psalm 57, takes place, like I said, in the cave in in Gedi. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful and moving story. And so let's have some story time. I want to read this to you. This is from 1 Samuel 24. Uh, It's not on screen, Rachel, so just enjoy the story. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, Look, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 select men from all Israel and went to find David and his men in the region of the rocks of the mountain goats. He came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. Saul went into it to relieve himself. Yes, this is the Bible. And even people in the Bible have to go number two. Follow along. Now, now, David and his men were sitting in the recesses of the cave. David's men said to him, This is the day about which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you can do to him whatever seems appropriate to you. So David got up and quietly cut off an edge of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off an edge of Saul's robe. He said to his men, May the Lord keep me far away from doing such a thing to my Lord, who is the Lord's chosen one, by extending my hand against him. After all, he is the Lord's chosen one. David restrained his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and started down the road. Afterward, David got up and went out of the cave. He called out to Saul, My Lord, O King! When Saul looked behind him, David kneeled down and bowed with his face to the ground. David said to Saul, Why do you pay attention when men say, David is seeking to do you harm? Today, your own eyes see how the Lord delivered you this very day into my hands in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I had pity on you and said, I will not extend my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's chosen one. Look, my father, and see the edge of your robe in my hand. When I cut off the edge of your robe, I didn't kill you. 
So realize and understand that I am not planning evil or rebellion, even though I have not sinned against you. You are waiting in ambush to take my life. May the Lord judge between the two of us, and may the Lord vindicate me over you, but my hand will not be against you. It is like the old proverb says, from evil people, evil proceeds, but my hand will not be against you. Who has the king of Israel come out after? Who is it that you are pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be our judge and arbiter. May he see and arbitrate my case and deliver me from your hands. When David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? Then Saul wept loudly. He said to David, You are more innocent than I, for you have treated me well. Even though I have tried to harm you, you have explained today how you have treated me well. The Lord delivered me into your hand, but you did not kill me. Now, if a man finds his enemy, does he send him on his way in good shape? May the Lord repay you with good this day for what you have done to me. Now, look, I realize that you will, in fact, be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, so now swear to me in the Lord's name that you will not kill my descendants after me or destroy my name from the house of my father. And David promised Saul this on oath. Then Saul went to his house and David and his men went up to the stronghold. That is, back into the cave. What a story. I mean, this moment, David is running for his life. Saul is out of his mind. And Saul comes in foolishly. No, he doesn't send anyone in to check the cave. He comes in foolishly, is totally vulnerable. You have to take your entire robe off based on the way it's put together for that situation. He's squatting naked in a cave, the king. And David spares his life. What I want to point your attention to in this story is found in verse 5. Afterward, this is after David cut off a bit of his robe, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off an edge of Saul's robe. That is wild to me. David chose not to hurt Saul, but the mere fact that he, dis- he ruined a piece of Saul's clothing, he is, he is pricked in his conscience. He's struggling with it. And so this whole thing unfolds, the story that we just read. David goes back into the cave. And it's no wonder to me, based on this verse, that David writes a prayer and the opening line is, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. He is wrestling in his inner being with this sense of, I have done wrong. I should not have done that thing that I did. And there's there's not a lot about David's life that I can relate to. I'm not very brave. (laughs) I don't have 600 mighty men. And I've never killed a giant. Um, In fact, I could never even beat my dad in basketball, and he's bigger than me. But this moment, this, this feeling that he's feeling in his heart, it is so familiar. We often talk about bringing our sin before God. In fact, that's what we talked about last week in great detail. 
But what about those moments where there's something that's transpired in your life and you kind of did what you thought was the right thing or, or, you know, it didn't seem obviously wrong, but afterwards you are ruined by it. Someone pointed it out to you. You realized it inadvertently hurt somebody. You, you, you thought through it and realized, gosh, I, I should not have said that. That joke was in totally poor taste. Why did I do that? Or, you know, or, or you, this, this is what happens to me, um, you know, a few times a year, and, it, and you guys have been the victims of this. Uh, you know, I get a text from you 90 minutes after we were supposed to be meeting. <laughs> you know, oh, no, it wasn't in my calendar, you know, that, and then you feel like, I've ruined everything, you know, this is moment and that this prayer is so familiar to me have mercy on me oh god have mercy on me inner turmoil in the messiness of life but in his prayer david doesn't just stay in his inner turmoil his disturbed conscience leads him to a meditation on god's character and that is where he finds his shelter. David is safe in a cave where he spared Saul's life, where he was safely hidden, but he's not talking about the cave. He's talking about God. In fact, he says, he says, your shelter, your the I take refuge in it and it reaches to the sky. You're like you're like a mother bird. You're bringing me under your wing. That's the stuff he prays in this. It's the character of God. That is David's shelter. Now, character is an important factor in our relationships. That's one of the obvious things I'm going to say today. Character is an important factor in our relationships. And there are many relationships in your life that you think you have the privilege and freedom to decide about that relationship based on the person's character. Um, we live in an area, for example, this is one I, I'm conscious of often, where there are a bunch of wonderful churches. And, you know, Stephen and I, we have to wrestle with the fact of, well, in a way, people are deciding whether or not to be part of the church based on our character. That's terrible news <laughs> for me. <laughs> you know, like, because you, you've got options, right? And you should consider the character of the leadership of a church when you're deciding to be a member. It's too late for you guys. But, <laughs> you know, parents, we want our kids to, to choose friends wisely. We want them to have peers of good character. We don't want them to fall into the wrong crowd. You know, you, Perhaps when those of you who are married, when you were single and looking for a spouse, you were thinking about the character of, of the people who were your options. Your options may have been many or may have been few. Uh, life brings different situations. But, you know, perhaps you considered their character in some way before you made that big commitment to them. When I hire people, other, some of you are, are employers or you're in positions where you need to interview people and hire them. Their character should be a factor in that. Okay, I could go on and on. There are types of relationships where, where we factor in character. 
many more relationships in our lives. In fact, probably some of the ones that we think we get to choose are given to us regardless of the people's character. Uh, you didn't get to consider the character of the two people who are your biological parents, you know? You didn't, if you're adopted, you didn't get to consider the character of the people who adopted you. It, there are many, you don't get to consider the character of your mailman. You don't get to consider, you maybe choose a, if you're in a situation where you're choosing a school for your kids, there might be a couple people that you're thinking about their character, but you get all the rest of the people in administration and teachers thrown in. Some of them are great and some of them are jerks. That's the reality. There are so many more relationships in our lives where we don't get to choose. We just have to be in that relationship and deal with the character of the people. Now, here's the ironic twist. In those relationships in which you think you got to factor in the character of the people, the more you get to know that person, the more frustrating they become. That's your... You, the person that you, maybe the person you love most, maybe you, maybe you married somebody and, and, and their character was a huge part of why you fell in love with them, but then you get to know them, right? And in fact, their character is something that you have to be patient with for the rest of the time. That, that, and any other relationship of the ones I just listed, if you got to choose based on character, that person is going to be a gradual disappointment to you. That's the reality of it. Whereas, those people who are foisted upon you, who you didn't get to choose, when they have a noble character, it feels like stumbling across a hidden treasure. Their character, every moment of goodness that you see in them, is a joy and a delight. Think about it. Th think, you know, you get hired into a company, this person's your manager, you don't get any choice. If that is a good person, what a you love it. You tell your friends about it. You rejoice in it. Noble character in those relationships leads to gratitude and joy. So the question is, which sort of relationship is it with God? Which sort of relationship is it? I think in our pluralistic world that we live in, where basically the, the common mindset is there is a menu of spiritualities and you get to choose what you want. You know, we, we treat our relationship with God like the first kind, where we factor in God's character into whether or not we will be in relationship with him. But if the things that the Bible says about God are true, here's the hard news. The menu is an illusion. <laughs> At the end of your life, you will discover no matter what you've selected on the menu that there was one God who was the creator and sustainer of all the rest of it and is the judge of it. And that God's character is not something you got to factor in as to whether you are on your face before him. Right? I mean, if the things that the Bible says about God are true, 
It's actually a relationship we don't get to choose. Now perhaps my first point can come clear. If you realize you've been assigned to God with as little of your choice as the person who delivers your mail, and then you realize that God's character is not only decent, but perfect and praiseworthy, friends, you have found the key to constant gratitude and joy as you discover that. That is David's position. In this psalm, David is basking in God's character. And there are two features of God's character that get repeated in verse 3 and in verse 10 that he basks in. Those two features are God's loyal love and his faithfulness. The Hebrew is chesed and emet. Chesed and emet. Now, the theology for this psalm can be traced to one of David's scriptures. You know, David only had the Pentateuch. He only had the, the stories of, you know, primarily the stories of creation and, and Moses and the law, all right? That, that's David's scripture. He has that set of scriptures. And, and if you read through the Psalms, you can, it's, it's pretty obvious that there's one place where God describes his character and David puts all of his hope on that being true. It's found in Exodus 34. It's this scene where God appears to Moses and tells Moses his full name. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed by before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love, chesed, and faithfulness, emmet keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's David's whole theology there. Think about what he prays in his prayers. Deal with the wicked and let your loyal love be poured out on me. In Hebrew... Chesed and emet are huge, significant words. Verse 3 of Psalm 57, David says, May God send his loyal love and faithfulness. And again, near the end of the psalm in verse 10, he says, For your loyal love extends beyond the sky, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Now, we've talked about chesed a, a few weeks ago, and I'm sure you remember everything I said about it. But just for a review, or if you missed that Sunday, the, the, this is the Hebrew language's highest and richest word for love. It's all over the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms. And, and when we try to translate it into English, we use this cacophony of amazing words, love, devotion, kindness, or, or we, we're like, those aren't good enough, so we squeeze words together. Loving kindness, that's it. Um, you know, this is maybe a little bit boring, but Old Testament scholars are always finding something to, uh, to debate, you know, find a new twist. I'm looking at our Masters of Old Testament person over here. Um, so in the 20s, this guy publishes this paper, and, uh, and he, he wants to make a splash. 
Um, but he also, he's convinced about his position, and he says, no, 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 we've got chesed all wrong. Chesed, if you look at it, it's a word about, you know, the, the covenant, sort of this contractual agreement where God sets out the stipulations of, you know, I've committed these things to you, and you've got to commit these things to me, and chesed is just describing the fact that God is is you know, so particular and detailed and devoted to, to every part of that agreement. You know, he's, he's like a, a great lawyer. You know, he's keeping you to the very letter, you know, in line of that covenant. And that's all Chesed is, is describing, you know, and so, and that swayed a lot of people. Now, here's the good thing that came out of that is, is a lot of the rest of the scholarship world said, Oh, we do think chesed has a lot to do with the covenants that God makes. We do. But then others, thankfully, started responding and saying, wait a minute. This word shows up in moments in the scriptures that have nothing to do with contractual agreements. There, there's this great story at the, the book of Ruth, you know, and, and, and this woman, Ruth, is a Moabite woman, and, and, you know, she's married into a Hebrew family, and then her husband dies, and, and her husband's brother dies, and, and her mother-in-law is destitute and needs to go back to Israel, and, and um, Ruth is totally free not to go with her. She has no contractual legal requirement to go with her but because of her chesed for Naomi she goes she follows her home there's many stories like that Uh, there's a great scene at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah which is this book of prophecy where God is describing how he wooed the Israelites to make a covenant with him And he says he basically set them up so that they were like a young bride moved with love for her groom so that she would make the covenant commitment. The chesed is the love that leads to the big agreement. It's the fuel for the fire. And that's the love that David basks in. That's the passion that, that, that he, he puts all of his hope in the fact that God's agreement with his people is not merely like, well, I signed this thing a bunch of years ago and I got to stick with it. No, it's a constant passion for his people. He also puts his hope in God's faithfulness. Along with God's chesed, he also is abounding in emet, faithfulness. Now, this word often shows up as an image. It describes things. Uh, it describes pillars in the Old Testament. So we have a pillar in the middle of this room. And the faithfulness of this pillar is the reason we are all still alive this deep into the service. The ceiling hasn't collapsed because the pillar is faithful. Emmet is used to describe the arms of a new parent with a newborn. So many of you are having babies right now. It's so cool. And when I hold your brand new babies, they feel like a jellyfish. (laughs) My babies are big and heavy and like hold on to you. Your babies are just wiggly. (laughs) And I like, I have, I, I find myself flexing muscles I didn't know I had. Because I so don't, I like, so that no matter what comes, your baby's not gonna slip through, you know? <laughs> you know that feeling! That's Emmett! That's the sort of love 
that God has. But it, and, and faithfulness that God has. And that's David's hope. That's what he thinks about God's character. That's what God has said about his character. And that idea of God is unusual in David's day. I mean, think, of, think about what you might know about the gods of various um, mythologies, whether Egyptian or Akkadian or Babylonian, whether the Greek gods or the Roman gods. You know, you might think of Zeus and all those gods or whatever. They are a mixed bag. They're very much like, like just big, powerful people who get jealous and angry and, and fickle, you know, and, the, and, and they take things out on each other and they trick each other and they're trying to use us as best they can. And that, that's the more common conception of God. Here's what we do. We say gods are just like us, only a lot stronger, and so we have to serve them. That's what we do all the time. But we do that to our God as well. We, we, we pray to God as if he's a big, strong version of ourselves. A dear friend, years ago, some of you will know who I'm talking about, but I won't say his name. Uh, I got to do ministry with him. He was a, he was a former police chief in Kansas. And he regularly conceived of God as getting his attention by whacking him over the head with a tube of four. That's a piece of wood, not a tube of something. That, that was how God got, you know, that was his conception of God. God was a really good police chief in his mind. He envisioned sort of the best version of himself. And... Here's the deal. I, I cannot deny that much of the fear and guilt that follows me in my life is a result of my own imaginations of a big, powerful Mike Wright who's judging the little Mike Wright. All right? Let there be no mistake that the person who tries my patience the most is me. So, of course, I would conceive of God as being frustrated all the time with me. David doesn't do that. He leans on that claim that God made about himself in Exodus. Jesus makes a similar claim in the book of Matthew. He describes his character and invites people to trust him. This is Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the statement of his character, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and my load is not hard to carry. And of course, the people who write the letters that follow in the New Testament, they bask in God's character. First John says, God is love. Like, it, that's basking in his character. So that's that's the idea that is driving David, and when he feels that inner turmoil, what does he do? He goes back to that. He leans on that. He recites it. That's how we take shelter in God's character. Recite his character back to him. God doesn't need to know that his loyal love reaches to the heavens. You do. Recite it. Pray it. I mean, gosh, even in this event with Saul, David, he experienced vindication. I mean, 
what happens at the end of the story? Saul is like, yeah, you're right. You should be king. I'm still going to try to kill you, which he does later, try to kill him again. But Saul knows the truth. David has been vindicated. In other Psalms, David recounts the miraculous stories of the people of Israel, especially their liberation from Egypt, the way God preserved them in the wilderness. He recalled the stories. He recited them. How not only did God claim to have chesed and emet, he proved it again and again. Welcome back, kids. You can find your parents. I'll finish soon. And also David revels in God's character. He's inside a cave, but he's picturing God's faithfulness as a pillar that reaches to the clouds. God's faithfulness is what's holding up the sky. David looks at the sky and he sees God's faithfulness. And we can do that too in music, prayer, and poetry. Meditate and revel in the character of God. I mean, what gets us closer to the truth? Saying God's love is really big or saying, Lord, your love reaches to the heavens. That captures it more. David had the stories. He had the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and those demonstrated, those proved God's character to him. David had those stories. David had his own life. He had been delivered from Goliath. He had defeated Goliath. He had been delivered from Saul. Miracles happened in David's life, and he could say, oh, you are proving your character to to me. What do we have? What do we have? Jesus, in in the verse in Matthew that we just heard, he claims to be an expression of God's chesed and emet. Jesus tells stories of God's character saying, heaven rejoices when one lost sinner is found. He's he's making claims about God's character. How does he prove it? What can we lean on for how he proves the character of God? Friends, this is why we recite the gospel week in and week out because the story of the cross is the proof of God's character. When you are experiencing inner turmoil, like, God, I don't think you can love me anymore for the way, because of the way I just treated that person or the mistake I just made over here. Why would you stick with me? Here's what we do. We look to the cross. We look to the cross. It's the greatest expression of the character of God. This is what Jesus was explaining to his guys around the table at the Last Supper. On the very night that he was betrayed, you want to talk about inner turmoil, on the very night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What drove him to make this covenant? Chesed, faithfulness, love. Let's pray together. Father, surely things have happened in each life in this room this week where we've wondered why you would stick with us. 
And I pray that as we come to this table today, that we would see that you have proven your love and faithfulness to us by giving your life to bring us to yourself. Despite ourselves. Thank you, God. We come to this table empty-handed. We come saying, have mercy on me, but we will leave saying, let the whole earth rejoice in your hesed and your emmet. In Jesus' name, amen.